Again, I count it a great privilege and a high joy to be with you in this service this day, to have this privilege to call upon our Lord and worship Him in spirit and in truth. Thankful for our visitors who are here with us and ask that you pray with us and for us that all that is said and done this morning will be to His praise, honor, and glory. I'd like to direct your mind this morning to Psalm 22. And uh, as is generally the case after meetings like we had, my mind has been stirred in a couple of dozen directions this week. And as I've thought about things that have gone from the Lord unto us, and there was some preaching this weekend out of Psalm 22, or this past weekend, but I'd like to look at some things a little further down. To set the stage, Psalm 22 is what is known as a messianic psalm. It's a psalm that is prophetic of Jesus and some things about him. I don't think it's, uh, it takes a whole lot of explanation to understand that. The very first verse of Psalm 22 says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So we see that this is a prophecy of Jesus Christ because those are the very words that he used on the cross. And I believe through the majority of this psalm, what we actually get is insight into Christ's mind and insight into his, uh, his feelings and his emotions as he went through the cross and the experience at Calvary. He talks about things like the bulls of Bashan uh, gaping upon him. And we certainly see that happening when the chief priests and the rulers and those passing by would you know, wag their heads and their tongues at him and say, if you're really the son of God, come down off your cross and we'll believe. Even the prisoners that were crucified with him cast the same in his teeth. And so they, they gaped upon him and these things troubled him. It even says that his bones stuck out at him. They stared at him. He talks about how he had bitterness of soul and anguish of spirit. He felt to be a worm and, and no man. But towards the end of this psalm, the, the tone shifts and the, the thought kind of moves in a different direction. And I don't believe it's necessarily a change from uh, what's happening as much as it's, to me, a glorious picture of some things that Christ thought about and Christ experienced on the cross that I don't think I give enough attention to. We, we give attention to the pain and the, and the suffering, and that is important. We give attention to the, um, the offering for sin and the great sacrifice that it took, the satisfaction of heaven for what Christ did, and all that is important. But some things happen at the end of Psalm 22 that I believe point to a phrase in Isaiah 53 when it says that he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand, and by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many. There were things that Christ thought about on the cross that should touch us today because he was thinking about you. And he wasn't just thinking about you living with him in heaven because it says he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. The Lord, through Jesus Christ, did some things on the cross that was in addition to our home in heaven, which is what David writes about at the end of Psalm 22. And we'll pick up reading in verse, uh, hard to start in the middle. We'll start in verse 24. Psalm 22, verse 24, it says, For he hath not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, neither hath he hid his face from him. But when he cried unto him, he heard, My praise shall be of thee in the great congregation. I will pay my vows before them that fear him. The meek shall eat and be satisfied. They shall praise the Lord that's, uh, 
praise the Lord that seek him, your heart shall live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn unto the Lord, and all the kindreds of the nations shall worship before thee. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he is the governor among the nations. All they that be fat upon earth shall eat and worship. All they that go down to the dust shall bow before him, and none can keep alive his own soul. A seed shall serve him. It shall be accounted to the Lord for a generation. They shall come, and they shall declare his righteousness unto a people that shall be born, that he hath done this. The thing that the psalmist gets to at the end of this relates to a lot of things we heard about last weekend. And that is the, the worship of God, the kingdom of his uh, son and the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. What Christ thought about when he was on the cross was the church. That was some of what he thought about because we're told in Acts 20 and 28 that the church is something that he purchased with his own blood. We have a situation before us today that the Apostle Paul says when we forsake the assembling of ourselves together... There are three things that that's equivalent to. It's equivalent to trampling underfoot the Son of God, counting the blood wherewith we were sanctified an unholy thing, and doing this despite under the Spirit of grace. So the flip side of that, as uh, Elder Bill Walden once said, don't ever beat up the people that are there for the people that aren't. Let's talk about what that means for the people that are in the house of God. That means that we haven't trampled underfoot the Son of God. We have elevated him through our worship, we haven't counted the blood wherewith we are sanctified an unholy thing. We've said that this is my salvation. This is my deliverance. This is what I will sing about, and this is what I will praise God for. Amen. And doing this with the Spirit of grace means the Spirit testifies while we're here that not only are we the sons of God, but that God is pleased with the things that we do. When the gospel goes forth and the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, there's something that happens inside of a child of God when the gospel goes forth, it testifies, that's right. It testifies that that's the truth. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14 that if a trumpet gives an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself to the battle? But when the gospel gives a certain sound, the Spirit testifies with us that this is the truth, this is the way, walk ye in it. And so Christ had the church on his mind. He had, I would say, certain situations about the church on his mind which we hope to get to and as we heard last weekend Christ comes to the congregation Christ comes and he worships with his brethren with the people of God as they attempt to serve him it's not one of those things where he's just sitting there saying well where's your praise he comes down with us and he helps us and by doing so elevates us and lifts us up and we sit together with him for a little while but as we look at this, and I don't want to look at all the verses I read, there's some things that happen at the end, particular to the church, particular to the sacrifice of Christ, that the more I've chewed on them, and I've tried to preach on some of these things before, but the more I've chewed on them, the more beautiful they become. Look again at the last two verses. Last two verses of the psalm, a seed shall serve him. It shall be accounted to the Lord for a generation. They shall come and shall declare his righteousness unto a people that shall be born, that he hath done this. Here the psalmist, speaking on behalf of Christ, says that a seed shall serve him. That term seed is interesting because it has a lot of different connotations, 
But the seed that, that uh, David is writing about, that the Holy Ghost inspired, is that there is something that God has planted in this earth, that when God plants it, it can't be undone. You know, it says in 1 John 3 and verse 9, it says, For whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he's born of God. The Lord puts a seed in his children that can never be undone. It can't ever be taken away. And the result of that is, is that once you're regenerated, you never have to be re-regenerated. You never get unregenerated. You are regenerated, and that's good once forever. It never has to be uh, uh, redone. It never gets undone. And because of that, when the Lord does something, I love what it says in uh, Isaiah 55, when it says, "Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters and drink. You go down into about verse 6. It says that the word that hath gone out shall not return unto me void. In other words, when the Lord speaks, it doesn't do what my voice does sometimes. It's, if you come to our house, you're going to feel like there's a record player stuck somewhere. For, uh, children, for those of you who don't know what a record player is, it's a thing that spins, and the needle would actually play the music, and sometimes it would get stuck, and you'd just be in that same little track over and over and over again. Well, that's how it is at our house, because you'll see it's obviously the record player stuck. Pick up your shoes. Close the door. Turn out the lights. Close the door. Pick up your shoes. Turn out the light. Close the door. Why are you hitting your sister? I mean, it's the same things over and over again. Uh, and I see from the reactions, it's the same way at your house. And my word that goes out, it returns unto me void. I mean, I love whenever I try to wake him up and I say, it's time to get up. It's time to get up. You know what finally works? Last warning. That generally works. But you know, when the Lord speaks, he doesn't have the problems that I do. He doesn't have the troubles that I do. When the Lord speaks, it's done. When the Lord commands, it stands fast. When the Lord says live, there's no argument, there's no decision, you live. And when you live, you live forever. And it's done because of what Jesus Christ has done. But the Lord has planted other seeds in this earth. Not just the seed of his, uh, uh, of his spirit within the heart of his children. He says about the kingdom in Luke 17 and about verse 10, he says... There are going to be some that say, well, lo, the kingdom is over here. Lo, the kingdom is over there. He said, don't go after that. He said, because the kingdom's not over there. The kingdom's not over here. He says, for lo, the kingdom of God is within you. Because it's not just that God changes your heart. He takes up residence there. He lives there. And where the king is, there's a kingdom. And where the king is, there's power. And where the king is, there's authority. And that seed that he's planted of his kingdom, it becomes manifest in a way in which we call the assembly of the saints, the church of the living God, the household of faith, all these terms are when the kingdom is brought forth in rich, manifest display before him. And the seed that he planted in his church, part of it is this. We're told in Jude verse 3 to earnestly contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. Another thing we heard a lot about last weekend was the authority and the, uh, the uh, infallibility and the preservation of God's word. You realize that when God wrote this down, he never had to go, oops, it needs an update. <laughs> when I write things down, I have to go back and update them all the time. There's even times that I'll go back and read something I wrote years ago and go, what in the world were you talking about? I don't even know what I was trying to say. Now, that happens to us. But God never wrote anything down where he said, you know, I probably could have said that better. 
we do that all the time. We, we, we're preaching and we think, I didn't make that point very well. I need to say that better next time. I need to illustrate that clearer next time. God doesn't suffer from that. Any confusion in the word of God is a confusion here or it's a confusion here. It's not on this page. Because the Lord delivered this once, that means once and for all time, for his children. And we're supposed to earnestly contend for these precepts that God has given unto us. So we have something that God has planted in the church, using something that God has planted in his word. And this seed that he has given unto us, it says, shall serve him. And it shall be (coughs) (coughs) accounted to the Lord for a generation. That's a very curious expression when you think about it. It shall be accounted to the Lord for a generation. We think of a a generation being a a group of people that lived and uh, died during a certain time. There was a a generation uh, before us that is commonly called in this country the greatest generation because they went through the Great Depression, they fought and they were victorious in World War II, and a lot of the things that they were blessed to live through and do blessed us to have a lot of the things that we have today. We think of the generation known as the Founding Fathers that established this country and put the rules in place that this country would be governed by. That's how we think of a generation. I'm actually, I believe, one of the last people born in what was called Generation X. And we're not a really good generation. That's why I don't brag about it. Uh, We're better than some of the ones that have come since, but that's another story for another day. Uh, I don't know what millennials are thinking. I'm not even sure if they know what they're thinking, but moving on. My point is this. That's how we think of a generation. It's a group of people born and lived in a certain time and then died. There's not many people of the greatest generation left. There's none of the founding fathers left. There's none of the first century church left, but it says it shall be accounted to the Lord for a generation. What this expression is teaching us is that this generation never passes. This generation carries on. This generation goes on. It's not that we live a generation in the church and then another generation lives a generation in the church. It's all one generation in the church. When the Lord delivered the church in this world, he never had to re-deliver it. When the Lord established it, he never had to reestablish it. And it's not my purpose to try to make the church better. It's not my purpose to make the church go on. And I'm going to say this with all the, the charity I don't have. There are expressions that people use all the time in regards to the church, and they're well meaning, but they're just wrong. Friends, the children are not the future of the church. The church has a future, and I want my children to be a part of that future. The reason the church has a future is because her head lives forevermore. He has the power and the preeminence over all things. My hope is that I will end my generation in this generation. There's no guarantee of that. I mean, I would like to say, and I'd like to stand here and be able to tell you with everything that I know that I'll spend my days in the church, and that's my hope that I do. But friends, that's not a promise that is given to us. The promise is that the church is going to go on. Our prayer and our walk is to go on with her. I've lived in a lot of different places. My wife told me years ago that if uh, my ministry ever took me to Africa... Uh, She said, I'll see you when you get back. (laughs) I said that to say this. 
there are th places that we went that I know she went to be with me. I mean, she didn't move from Texas to Mississippi because she loved Mississippi. She did that because she loved me. And we moved from Mississippi to Georgia because I thought that's where the Lord would have me go. But she wasn't just like, yay, Georgia. I mean, we still don't understand why they call a nut a pecan. I don't know what, where that comes from. I couldn't fix it while I was there. Now, I may not be able to fix the church, but I'll try to fix people if I can, and I couldn't fix that one. But, you know, the one thing that I never had to have my wife really get behind, when I told her, let's move to Texas, it wasn't like, well, if that's where you're supposed to go, she goes, yes, let's go. And you know how I feel. I'm, I'm thankful to live here. I'm thankful to be here. But, friends, if the church ever leaves Texas, I'm not staying in Texas. I'm going to go where she goes because she's going to be somewhere. There's going to be a generation that goes on until the Lord comes back. This is a, a thing that Paul writes about in his prayer to the Ephesian church in, uh, at the end of Ephesians 3, starting in about verse 20. He says, Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, to him be praised in the church World without end, amen. amen. He says that the church is going to be here, world without end, amen. And the reason that is the case is because the Lord is just going to deliver her right up into the best congregation, the best assembly we've ever been in when we all get to heaven some sweet day. So this generation that the Lord has, it's been going on since he set it up, since the seed was established, and it's going to go on until he delivers up the kingdom to his father. And I'll say this. As long as we are here, may it be our happy joy and duty to stand in our place upon the walls of Zion, holding aloud the torch of truth and spirit and crying aloud and sparing not because, friends, what the Lord has given to us here is precious. What the Lord has given to us here is not something to be handled lightly and loosely. This is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. It's a place, friends, where God makes his abode on earth. I mean, you think about that. He's in heaven with all majesty, all glory, all honor. And yet he comes to a place like this. And he meets with a people like we are. And friends, in my eyes, you're a great people. In my eyes, you are the household of faith and the people of the living God. But you realize that by just simple metrics, we're a broken people. We're a people that have problems and faults and failures. I don't know what the singing of heaven must be like. And as much as I love the singing here, friends, we can't match pure, unadulterated praise free from sin. We can't match that. As much, friends, as we pour out our hearts to him in prayer, we cannot match pure hearts speaking to him directly while he's on his throne. And no matter how blessed a sermon ever is, no matter how blessed a man may have with liberty of the spirit, it doesn't match one note and one word and one utterance of the greatest preacher from his throne as he speaks peace to his people in heaven. And that's what heaven is. And yet he comes down. 
He condescends to men of low estate like us. And in our mire, in our guilt, in our sorrow, he raises us up. He blesses our eyes to be turned from the weak and the beggarly elements of this whole world to lift them up to the hills from whence cometh our help. And we understand and, and know all over again that God is on his throne and God loves us. Friends, my understanding of that never makes it so, but I'm awful glad when my eyes and my heart get realigned to see that all over again. Because I need to be reminded that God has all power. I need to be reminded that God's love is everlasting and with loving kindness he's drawn me. I need to be reminded, friends, that no matter how many of the trials are, no matter how bad the trials are, he walks through the fire with me. He blesses the floods not to overflow. He blesses, friends, his children in this earth in ways that sometimes we can't even imagine. And when we come here, our purpose in this generation is to praise him, not for what he would do, but to praise him for what he's already done. To thank him, friends, not to see what we can get out of him, but to thank him that he's already given unto us, exceeding abundantly above all that we could ask or think. And this seed that is counted to the Lord for a generation, notice what it says. It says, they shall come and they shall declare his righteousness unto, uh, unto a people that shall be born, saying that he hath done this. One of the things that we do when we're here is that we declare his righteousness. You remember what the Apostle Paul wrote in uh, Philippians chapter 3 when he wrote the same things to them again, and he said it's not needful, but it's safe. He said, you don't necessarily need to hear this again, but it's safe and it's proper and it's good for me to tell you this. He says, we're not like them. And let me just make a, a comment I'll, I'll just go ahead and steal it from Ronald Lawrence. He said, if someone ever asks you how the world's treating you and you say, great, a reexamination needs to be had somewhere. Friends, the world loves its own. And we're not of the world, so the world shouldn't love us. There ought to be a difference. Paul says we're not like them. We're not like the concision. We're not like those evil dogs out there that do things to bite and devour. But we're those who joy... In Jesus Christ, rejoice in the truth, and what? Have some confidence, a lot of confidence, have no confidence in the flesh. My purpose in being here this morning, I hope, is not that so you'll think, oh, what a good preacher. Oh, what a good fellow. Oh, what an amazing ability. Friends, when we sing unto him, it's not so that others say, oh, you've got a wonderful voice. When we offer prayer, it's not to be heard for our much speaking. Friends, when we come before him in his courts, it's to declare one thing and one thing only. Because without his righteousness, none of the rest of this is ever going to mean anything. If I don't have his righteousness, friends, I'm nothing and less than nothing. Because all of my righteousness, as the Bible says, are as filthy rags. David says in another psalm that verily man at his best state, not his worst state, his best state is altogether vanity. We come to declare his righteousness. Um, we sing a song sometimes that says, uh, you friends of the Savior, let me tell you what the Lord has done for my soul. That's one of the things that we speak to one another about in our psalms and our hymns and our spiritual songs. Paul said when his preaching came, it was to do one thing and to know one thing. And that wasn't him. It was to know him 
Jesus Christ and him crucified. When he says about his place and his position, both as Saul of Tarsus and now as the Apostle Paul, he said, I'm willing to forget all those things that are past because I'm reaching forward to one thing. And what is that? It's what I'm pressing to, the mark for the prize of the high calling where? In Christ Jesus. What was he willing to know? Nothing after the flesh. He counted all that but loss that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the sufferings of his death, uh, suffering, uh, being uh, made conformable to his sufferings and to understand the uh, power of his death. We understand, friends, that when we're here, we're here to declare him. We're to declare his righteousness. Notice what it says in, uh, um, uh, uh, we've already quoted it, Romans 1 and 16, that when the gospel goes forth, the righteousness of God is what? Revealed. doesn't mean it's not been present. It's already been present, but now it's revealed. And friends, I'll tell you this. If a man ever gets up and preaches a sermon, and at the end of that sermon, you can't see Jesus, he didn't preach. I don't know how to say it any plainer than that. If you can't see Jesus, he didn't preach. Now, there are things that we have to preach about that revolve around duty. There's things that we have to preach about that revolve around correction, instruction, exhortation. But friends, all of those are centered on Jesus Christ. I mean, if I want to talk about something as as, uh, duty-minded as say, assembly in the worship of God, attendance in the house of God. What would I start? I'd probably start in Luke chapter 4, that when he was in Nazareth, where he was brought up, as his custom was, he was in the synagogue every Sabbath day. In Acts 17, Paul, as his custom was, or as his manner was, he was in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Well, if our Lord's custom and ritual and practice and the order of his life was to be in the house of God every week, What should be my order? To be in the house of God every week. If it was our apostle, the apostle to the Gentiles, practice to be in the house of God every week, there's an example. To be in the house of God every week. But friends, it all starts with Jesus Christ. It's all centered on Jesus Christ. If you want to know how it is you're supposed to give give of your life, of your substance, of your praise, of your spirit unto, unto God, just take the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans, 1 Corinthians um. 8 and verse 9, For you see the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, brethren, how that though he were rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that we through his poverty might be rich. There's how you understand how it is to give of yourself to God because Christ gave everything. How are we supposed to give? Our whole heart, our whole soul, our whole mind, our whole strength, all that we are, and love our neighbors, ourselves. Why? Because Christ did that. It's not that he's asking us to do something he never did. He's asking to do exactly what he did, and he did what we couldn't do so that we wouldn't have to. Friends, it all revolves around him, and it's his righteousness that is being spoken of. It's his righteousness that's being revealed. And who is it being revealed to? It's being revealed to a people that shall be born. It's to be handed off to the very next generation. It's to be given to them to be a part of this generation. That whether it's your children, your grandchildren, your neighbors, your friends, whoever it is. Because, friends, it's not always children that we're handing it off to. I'll tell you what's a, what's a joy is when you see somebody, and I've known some like this, who all their life had a question inside, and that question never could get answered. Maybe the question had different forms and different fashions, but what they were looking for was they were looking for peace to a troubled soul. And they would try this activity or this group or this organization and that didn't satisfy. They would try this and it didn't satisfy. And maybe they were 40, maybe they were 50. I knew a man who 
found the church at the age of 70. And he said, I've been looking for this my whole life. And friends, he was a babe in Christ. And watching him grow and experience things for the very first time was a joy to witness. It wasn't he was a child in age, but he was a child in the faith. And seeing him just weep under sermons that I had heard that subject many, many times before. I admit it reminded me that I can grow stale. It refreshed and revived me that that's how I should be. What does the Apostle Paul say to the Hebrews in Hebrews 10 that whenever trials come, he says, remember the former days. Remember when you were first illuminated. Remember when the truth first came home. Because, friends, how that freshness was is how it should stay. Because it's not that it ever grows stale on the page. It grows stale in our mind. It grows stale in our heart. But, friends, may we never grow tired of hearing about election. May we never grow tired of hearing about eternal security. May we never grow tired of hearing about what Jesus Christ did and saving his people from their sins. Because, friends, these things should be handed down. We're going to get to a minute what should be handed down the most faithfully. But what was the Apostle Paul charging Timothy with? He says, the things that thou hast heard of me, this is 2 Timothy 2 and 2, the things which thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same things commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. (coughs) I realize not everybody has had this experience, but I, I think about it a lot. Because while I may have had it personally, we've all had it as a group, as an assembly. Next weekend, Lord willing, I'll be present at an ordination for a deacon. And every time I'm at an ordination, whether it's a minister or a deacon, as I join that group, laying hands on that brother, it brings me back to the day that I knelt and hands were laid on me. Friends, nothing magical happens during that. I didn't come away from that prayer endowed with knowledge that I didn't have before. I've had to dig and study and try to grow. But what I did feel on that day was the weight and the responsibility of the authority that had been conferred through the authority of the church here on earth because those hands that were laid on me had hands laid on them. And those hands had hands laid on them who had hands laid on them That when you go back far enough, you have Jesus Christ laying his hands on his apostles saying, Receive ye the Holy Ghost as he breathes on them. Friends, this is a great responsibility that we have. You say, well, you're a preacher. Friends, I was given that authority not by those ministers. I was given that authority by the church, which is God's authority upon earth. Because what has been laid upon us as the church of Jesus Christ was conferred by hands that laid it down before. Which was conferred by hands that laid it down before which was conferred by hands that laid it down before until you get all the way back to Jesus Christ who set it up in the church in the first place. And friends, the church didn't begin on the day of Pentecost. The Lord had already established her before he went back to glory. He had already laid down the seed and the foundation. But on the day of Pentecost, she went out. And when she went out, friends, she went out like these other verses say, under the ends of the earth. She went to other nations. She went to other places. And I'm awful glad she did because, friends... I'm glad we live in this nation. I'm glad we live in this place because our position here is better than the church has ever had it because not only naturally do we have liberty and freedom, 
We're living in an age of this generation in the church that is closer to his coming than any other age ever has been. This is the best time to live. This is, in my opinion, the best place to live. It's the best situation that we could have. And friends, what we're teaching those coming after us, to the generation that shall be born, I realize we literally have some, we have two boys on the way. I mean, they're coming. But friends, this also applies to those who are here now. It applies to those who will also come into our midst, into our assembly, into the congregation, that we should be declaring above all things this line, what's the greatest thing that I can teach my children? That he hath done this. It's the greatest thing I can teach my children. Give me two minutes to make a point here that I don't have to make, but I want to. One of the things that we heard about last weekend was the authority of the scriptures. One of the things that we have in our Bibles that other reversions of the Bible don't have, and what I'm speaking about is the King James, which is, I believe, God's authoritative word in English on this earth. In the King James, the translators did something not to prove a point, but just for our information. They let us know when what is commonly called supplied language is used. And supplied language on your page will be a word in italics. Now, that doesn't mean that word is not valid. doesn't mean that word doesn't apply. It's just simply them saying for us to make the translation flow from one language to another, we had to supply words. Because there are languages which are narrow and there are languages which are broad. Uh, I may have made this point here before, I don't know, but uh, I've watched a lot of foreign films, and it's interesting to watch foreign films with the English subtitles on. I mean, German and Swedish films are hilarious because they growl every word that comes out of their mouth. And I don't know how <coughs> can be a whole sentence in English, but it is. I mean, all he did was growl, and you gave me seven words that were a whole sentence. How did that come out of one growl? You know, you've, you know that, you know, Far East, Asian languages, they're, they're very broad in the sense that one symbol can mean a lot of things. It's not like this is the character of the alphabet for A, for B, for C. This one symbol can mean a whole thing. It can mean a whole paragraph, which is why they'll sometimes say one syllable, be like, ow, and it's like a whole English sentence that comes out. I'm like, how is that possible? But that's the difference between language. Now, I said that to say this. When you take Greek and Hebrew, which the Bible was originally written in, and you bring it to English, some of those languages are narrow, especially uh, Hebrew. It's very narrow. English is very broad. We have words for everything. We have words that mean seven different things. I mean, you, I love it when I go to, I, I say love in quotation marks. I love it when I go to a dictionary and I'm trying to figure out what a word means. I'm like, there's eight definitions. Which one is the right one? I mean, how is this even possible? So the translators, to make language flow... When a Greek or Hebrew word, phrase, sentence, paragraph needed some language to make it flow, they supplied language. And I believe they were providentially blessed to do so. If you look at this sentence that we're handing down to the next generation, that he hath done this, this is italicized. The actual translation purely rendered is that he hath done. Now, that seems a little awkward in English, but it's that he hath done. You go over to John chapter 18, when Christ goes into the Garden of Gethsemane, 
and the soldiers come, <coughs> being led of Judas Iscariot. He says, Whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. He saith, I am he. The he is italicized. In actual conversational language, you know what he said? I am. This very same title he gave to Moses at the burning bush, the very same title he gave to Abraham when he says, I am thy strength, thy shield, and thy exceeding great reward. He's saying, I am the great I am, whoever liveth, who's always been and will always be. Now, the he makes sense in English, and I believe it's proper, but sometimes when I'm reading the Bible and I see a supplied word, I like to read it both ways. Because I think in this particular sense, reading it both ways gives me a better insight of what's being said. What is the best thing that you can teach your children? What's the best thing I can teach my children? That he hath done. What? Doesn't matter. Whatever it is, he hath done. Now in the church, the greatest sense of that is John 19 and 30 when he cried out in a loud voice and said, it is finished. Friends, it's done. That's one of the greatest things our children can know is that when it comes to what has been laid before Christ, it is finished to the fullest and the final degree. One of the greatest messages that a man, a man of God can deliver to a, a weary, heart-sick, soul-burdened, sin-laden child of God is that it is all okay because it is finished because he has made him to be sin who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The greatest message that a child of God can hear on this earth is that the captain of their salvation has been made perfect through sufferings, and because of that, the warfare is over, and many sons have been uh, brought up to glory. One of the greatest things that a child of God can know in this world is that no matter how many mistakes we make, no matter how many shortcomings we have, we have been freely justified by the grace and the redemption that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. One of the greatest confidences and comforts we can have is that though I am weak, he's still strong. Though I fall, he never does. Though I let him down, he never lets me down. And though I fail him, and though I'm unfaithful, he abides faithful, and he cannot deny himself. And because of that, friends, we can have confidence that come what may, whatever the trial is, it's all right because he hath done. But friends, he's also done this. He's done this. He's given us an avenue this morning to commune with him. He's given us, as uh, Jacob declares, the house of God, which is the gate of heaven. As Peter says, he's given us an entrance that can be ministered into abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I know I've said this before, but I'm going to say it again. One of my favorite refrains to ever sing in a song is the fifth verse of Mercy Seat. Where it says, there, there, on eagles' wings we soar, and sin and sense seem all no more. And what? And heaven comes down, our souls to greet, and glory crowns the mercy seat. Friends, what is it that he has done? He's done this, that we have the opportunity to come in. It's Friends, it's not because this is, I don't even know the physical address of this place, but it's not because we're at this location on FM 713 in McMahon, Texas. That's not why this is the place. It's the place because God comes down and meets with his people in places like this. It's not, friends, because I am Philip Conley and you are who you are. It's because God comes down and meets with his people in places like this. I joked with 
Brother Sonny earlier when he was picking at Weston and said, you didn't give me a hug, you didn't even give me a word. And I said, did you deserve a word? He said, deserve, let's not talk about deserve. Let's talk about mercy. I said, what a novel concept. Friends, it's not that we deserve this. It's not that God has to do this. God in his mercy afforded us this and provided us this. And whenever we have meetings and assemblies such as this, we can go away once again saying, he hath done this all over again. When it comes to the trials that I face, when it comes to the sorrows that I have, when it comes to the things that by nature should bow me over, that I'd never get out of bed again. And I have the strength to get up and to carry on. And like Paul said, I know how to both be abound and how to be abased. I know how to be full. I know how to be hungry. I've learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. And I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. At the end of the day, what do I say about that? He's done this all over again. When you approach the communion table and you take the bread and wine as you've done over and over again, I hope all the days of your life, I've been doing it since I was nine years old. Friends, why is it that when you do it, it's like you're doing it for the first time? It's because he had done this. Why is it, friends, that graced his a charming sound as a note that sounds as sweet as the day I first heard it. And I don't mean heard it, I mean heard it. It's because he had done this. Why is it, friends, that we can sing songs that the world sings, thinks are just so dreary? I mean, I, I remember when my brother and I were young and we lived out in California. Thank God none of it stuck. But we had neighbors that would hear us singing as we were playing in the yard. And normally, James and I, we, we sang songs that, you know, kind of revved us up. My sister wasn't like that. I remember one time she was riding her bicycle up and down the driveway and down the sidewalk to the stop sign and back, and all she was singing over and over again was that same line. When I was sinking down, sinking down, sinking down. And you know that line to a minor note? Neighbors are going, what is wrong with that child? If they only knew, there's a lot wrong with my sister, but that wasn't one of them. I mean, that was actually something good. But the world finds that strange. The world finds it strange that you would give up a day at the beach, a day at the golf course, a day at the whatever, to go to the house of God. When people asked me last week, they said, oh, so you're taking off work, where are you going? I said, I tried to make it easy. I said, I'm going to the Texas Hill Country. They said, oh, you're going tubing? I said, no. I said, are you going, uh, well, you can't be going hiking. It's too hot for all that. I said, no, I plan on not doing much hiking. And they said, where are you going? I said, you ever heard of a place called Doss? And they went, where? I said, it's right outside Fredericksburg. Oh, I know where that is. Well, what's in Doss? I said, not much, but there's a little location there called Squaw Creek Permanent Baptist Church. I said, oh, we should have known. <clears throat> Why would you take vacation for that? As much as I love being at Doss, because you can look off in the distance, and it looks like it did 150 years ago. I can almost imagine the Comanches coming over the hill at me. I, and I love that kind of stuff. But that's not why I went to Dawes. And most people driving down Highway 87 would see that turn off Dawes and go, wherever that place is. And, you know, naturally speaking, Dawes isn't even, uh, Squaw Creek isn't even the best-looking church in Dawes. they got that big old ornate Lutheran building. Most people, they said, hmm, there's two churches here. That one, that one looks better. Let's go over there. Why would you go to a place like that? Why would you spend your time in a place like that? 
I'll tell you why. And what you are teaching your children by example, and what you're teaching them hopefully through the words that you sing and the things that we say one to another, we're teaching our children that he has done this. Because he has done this, we have assurance that he's done this. And when we see that he's done this, we can have the hope that he's going to do this. Now, if you don't know what all those gestures mean, because he's done this and he's made heaven ours, we can have confidence that he's going to make this world bearable through his spirit and through his presence. And every time you have his presence among you, there is hope once again that he's going to do this one day and bringing you by his power up to heaven to be with him some sweet day. I'm not going to say that our children are never going to see us fall. They are. I'm not going to say they're never going to see us get cast down. They will. But the lesson I want my children to see from me is that no matter what, it's all right. It's all right. If I hurt, it's all right. If I become incapacitated, it's all right. And if I leave, it's all right. Why? Because he had done this. It's not just good for what he did at Calvary 2,000 years ago. It's good for what he's doing today in our lives. And it's good for expectation of what he's going to do someday in the future. You know what Christ was thinking about, at least part of it, while he was on the cross? He was thinking of a little place called Bethel Perita Baptist Church. On July the 23rd, 2023, and it was yet one more opportunity by a little portion and a little band in his vineyard one more time that was given this opportunity by what he was doing and what we can now say he hath done, and we look forward to him doing many more days in our future until that day that this generation joins the great congregation and this generation goes up. I don't know what's going to be left when I leave. I don't know who's going to be left when I leave. I know somebody will be. I'll steal something I heard Mark Richards say from this very pulpit many years ago. He said, my goal while I'm here is not to fix it. And my goal is not to leave my mark on it. My goal is to hopefully it'll be like it was when I left or when I got there. But not that I made my mark on it, but that she made her mark on me. That people can look at me and say, there goes a dweller of the kingdom, a follower of the Lamb, one who in all seasons of life is uplifted because there's something different about the way that he looks at this world and that difference. And it's all the difference. And it's the only difference is that he hath done this. He hath done, is doing, and we hope one day will do when he takes us home to be with him. Friends, if you felt like you've been up to the very gate of heaven. You know where that comes from. If you feel, friends, that you've been lifted up out of this world for a little while, you thank God that you're part of the seed that is accounted in this generation 
And may we show the others coming after us how much it means to us. We can't make it mean something to them, but we can show them how much it means to us. And may they know from us that he hath done this, that he hath done all things well, that he's told me all things that ever I did, and that there's a place where he dwells with his brethren. It may, be, may it be our joy to dwell there all the days of our life. If you felt this way, we give him all the praise, honor, and glory. May the Lord should bless you is my prayer. What number?